0: Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor Abe Lee. He is preaching from Galatians chapter 2 verses 15 through 21. So we were about to last week before COVID hit, uh, and I was asymptomatic. So I'll tell you this, being an asymptomatic COVID person is really annoying because you can't do anything. You just sit there and stare at I realized that after a while, there's only so much streaming you can do before you start losing your mind. So. Um, but we were going to start this new sermon series called Letters from a Friend. And what we're going to be doing in this sermon series is going to look at some of the shorter letters from the Apostle Paul, the ones he wrote to different churches and to individuals. This is after Christ returned to heaven to prepare our future home, the upside down kingdom for his beloved children. Now these letters from Paul to the churches in Galatia, Ephesus, uh, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, Uh, as well as letters that he wrote to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, they all contain so much wisdom, so much truth, all intended to inform us of God's character and God's design for each of us today. So what I want to do today is we're going to start that off by looking at the letter he wrote to the churches in Galatia. The first thing I want to point out uh, about these letters is this. Uh, They all follow a pretty basic structure. Paul always starts with a greeting, a greeting to establish his voice, his tone, as well as to identify who he is, who he's writing the letter to. And so in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, this is what Paul starts off his letter, saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus as Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read one more. This is the one that he wrote to the Colossian Church. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you, and peace from God, our Father. See, even in, in Paul's greetings when he wrote these letters, which, if you read them, they almost feel like a prayer, an opening prayer. Each of his greetings there's a little reminder of God's plan, God's hand, God's design here. He says, an apostle of Christ by God's will. An apostle not by human power, but by God's plan. And So with his opening words, you can sense that everything Paul is sharing, it is intended to, to draw us nearer to our Father in heaven, who, who, who so desires for us to know him more. So Paul's purpose in each of these letters is to be an encouragement, an encouragement in our struggle to live faithfully as the beloved of God, as the redeemed by Christ and his sacrifice and resurrection. Now, after Paul does his greeting part, it's typically followed by some sort of praise or thanksgiving, except this letter. Accept this letter to the Galatian churches. And there's, there's always this, I, I thank God for you every time I pray for you kind of piece there. that points to, to reasons for rejoicing because there always seems to be in these letters reasons, some reason for rejoicing. And I, I'll tell you, this is a really good pattern, I think, and something I hope we can start doing in our church. Reasons for rejoicing, to learn to and to dedicate time to experience and to, to celebrate joy. See, when the pandemic first started, the three and the three services, three campuses combined into one single stream. I remember sitting down with the other campus pastors and I asked if we could include something that we had been doing at Wicker Park for some time, which is corporate prayer. Um, That's spending time towards the beginning of our service, lifting up requests to God, depending on whatever the needs of our community happened to be that week or the needs of the world around us. Um, and it's not unique, but it's, it's a good thing, I think. and something that we really uh, enjoy doing. But there's something that our prayer ministry leads, Cindy and Diana, that they pointed out that's kind of missing in that time, which is praise. Praise for answered prayers, celebrations for Christ's work in our lives. So I'm hoping, moving forward, that the joy that Paul demonstrates in each of his letters It becomes the norm for us as we hear and we see how God is answering prayers here in our church. And I do mean literal demonstration of this. Moments that call for even clapping or whistling or shouting or cheering, which is really awkward for our church to make noise during service. I understand that. But here's the first one I want to make an announcement about. Alexa, Alex, Alexa, (laughs) sorry, Alex and Elena Spears, had their baby girl named, Yay! what's the baby, Juliet Spears, and so Alex and Elena, I'm sure you're watching right now as you're <laughs> recovering, um, but congratulations to you. Um, another thing that we get to celebrate today is we get to celebrate how God's moving in our little church. I'm constantly amazed. See, at the end of service, we're going to be inducting six new members to our family here at Church of the Beloved. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because, you know what? Beloved is not going away. We are not. Last week, we celebrated nine years um, of standing up to the darts and the arrows that the devil's been throwing at our church. From fallen leaders to pandemic restrictions to down internet to having to wear a mask. We are constantly growing in our faithfulness. We are constantly growing in our devotion to one another. We are constantly growing. And because of that, we absolutely can, and I believe we should, celebrate, and we will, and thank God for the work He's doing in us and through us, all of us. We get to do it with food, too, afterwards. So I'll tell you, if you have moments of joy, moments of celebration, thankfulness for answered prayers... Please share them with us. I'm going to ask you, talk to me. Send me an email. Talk to Yuji. Talk to your small group rep, your ministry leader, whatever. Because we want to do what we just did now. We want to dedicate time where we can truly celebrate as a church. So we can thank God together for the work that he's doing in our lives. All right. So, Paul's letters, they include a greeting, like an opening prayer. They include praise, which I'm hoping we can start doing as part of our church. And then Paul usually gets into some deeper doctrine, some theology. He wants to, uh, Paul wants to establish what it is that we are called to believe, why we believe it, and it's all based on the truth that has been revealed to him by Jesus Christ. Right? This doctrinal foundation, it allows him to transition ultimately to the practical application of that doctrine to each of our lives. And to put it another way, Paul's letters always includes the why and the what Necessary to help us draw nearer to our Father in heaven. Now, when you read the Bible, it is always essential that we have to first consider what the Bible is saying and who the Bible is saying it to before we try to understand what, it, uh, what you and I might be able to, to learn from it and live from it. Because the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was absolutely written for us. And as we're going to start looking at these eight of Paul's 13 letters, that's exactly what I want to do, right? We want to understand the doctrine that Paul is teaching. We want to discern the implications that it had towards the original readers. And then we can consider the application for us today based on that. Now, finally, in Paul's template, and I'm just typically trying to show you what it looks like, uh, his template has a final summation of typically a shout-out to different folks because you know back then sending letters was a was a big deal you know he took advantage of it paul took advantage of the fact that you know there was a letter going out somewhere that he couldn't get to and so he wanted to be very uh, advantageous of uh, take advantage of the fact that he can give specific shout outs to his friends so that's paul's letter template the structure he liked to use with these letters that he was sending to his friends there's one other thing i want to also mention um, with regards to these letters that we're going to look at. And it's the order that the letters are actually included in our Bible. Because it's not chronological. It's not based on date. Romans to Philemon, and I'll I'll say this, there are some who believe that Hebrews was also written by Paul, but when you read it and you look at it, I don't don't think so, personally. But from Romans to Philemon, the order that we have today is very pragmatic. It, It starts with letters to churches, and then it ends with letters to people. And then the order is... Totally based on length. That's the order Romans to finally means just length It's like the original leaders of the church when they were assessing the canonical nature of the original Bible They just decided to like Marie Kondo it or something. They were just like, we're gonna follow this order This is the cleanest way to do it. And so we're gonna follow the same order and hopefully it'll spark some joy <laughs> Yes, ah, oh, you got it. I was worried that no one would understand that one by the way um, Before we go on I want to make one more mention Uh, It's so good. I'm looking back and I can actually see our AV team in the back. I don't know if y'all... So if you turn around, these are the people who have for the past two years been hiding in that room over there. Thank you so much for being able to transition out here. Um, Trust me, they've been suffering in the back room and so it's good to have you guys joining us in real life. All right, so that's all context and foundation. What is Galatians about? What led Paul to write to the churches in Galatia? In a word, freedom. The letter is about the freedom of the beloved in Christ. It's it's about what is often called Christian liberty. See, Paul is writing to the Galatians because his sisters and his brothers, they had forgotten a core truth of the gospel, that the redemptive act of Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave is all that is needed for us to become the beloved of God. That is it. Nothing else is required for us other than to believe this truth and to let this belief impact our lives. That's it. But in Galatia at the time, there was a group of people. They were called the Judaizers. They were convincing the people of the Galatian churches that they needed a gospel plus the original Levitical laws of the Old Testament. They needed that to be redeemed. So they weren't truly free. They weren't there was no liberty for them. And hearing this, Paul was pissed off. He was so angry, he couldn't even pause to encourage the Galatian churches, who he loved, with some positive affirmation. No, he, he, he dove right into a diatribe against the heretical teachers in Galatia. For a little bit more context uh, about Paul, Paul traveled around quite a bit, did a number of uh, missionary journeys throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Um, During the very first one, he spent time in a number of Galatian cities, uh, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. And because of the way his missionary journey, his travel worked, once he got to Derbe, he basically doubled back and then got a chance to spend more time in each of those same cities. So not only did he help to establish the churches in each of those places in the first place, He got to come back to spend more time teaching them the truth that Christ had revealed to him. So he knew the folks in Galatia really well. He knew them so... They were his friends. And So so them taking the truth of the gospel that he had preached and allowing it to be distorted by other teachers when they should have known better, that just made him so angry. It just pissed him off. In chapter 1, Verse 6 to 9, this is what he wrote to them. He said, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. And are are turning to a different gospel. Not, Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. Now, As you read through this letter to the Galatian churches, especially towards the end, you can see that Paul has a deep compassion, a deep love for the Galatians. But right now, here, he's just straight up disappointed. Because they should have known better. Now, before Paul gets too deep into the theology of how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, before he gets too deep into that, he does spend a moment to countermand what the Judaizers are arguing, what they're saying. These folks believed. The Gentiles who wanted to follow Jesus Christ, they first needed to become Jewish. That's the only way to be saved. That's what they said. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to eat only kosher food. Do all the other things that the Torah or the law or the Old Testament that that had commanded of God's original chosen people. And their basic argument was this. Their basic argument was that Paul's teaching was just his opinion. It was the opinion of a person. That the simplicity of the gospel, that salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, that 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 gospel, they said it was incomplete, that it wasn't enough. So Paul spends the rest of chapters 1 and 2 just logically using and spelling out how what he was preaching and what he had preached, it was not from a human being, but it was directly from Jesus Christ. And it was affirmed by the other apostles. They all agree, the apostles agree that God's ordained leaders, the apostles of the global church, they agree that the gospel of Christ is simply this. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that the only path, only path towards a reunion back to the family of God is by God's grace alone that leads to our faith alone in Jesus as the son of God. That the redemption of his beloved was bought by Jesus' crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And that was it. Nothing else. Nothing else needs to be added. Nothing else can be added. And that when this gospel is truly believed, then the transformation in God's beloved by the power of the Holy Spirit is awesome and it is unmistakable. And these were not Paul's words. These were not Paul's thoughts. These were not Paul's opinions. These were directly from Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, this is what he wrote. He says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. So after Paul spends the time establishing his qualifications, he's an apostle, he's an emissary of Christ, Paul then gets into reminding the Galatians and reminding us of a foundational truth. And that's this. We are not saved by the law. The law shows us we need to be saved. The Old Testament, uh, if you ever read through it, there are like over 600 laws for the people of God written in there. And some of them, I will admit, are pretty weird and pretty bizarre. Like, you're not supposed to be able to touch the skin of a dead pig. You can't wear clothes that combine two different threads. Uh, You can't plant two different seeds in a vineyard together. These are some of the ones that, and as I said before, as you think about this, you have to remember the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. So when you look at these old laws, we need to consider who they are written to to better understand why they were written in the first place. Let me ask this question. Um, well, maybe you probably don't, but did you know that in Arizona, it's actually illegal to let a donkey sleep in your bathtub? In Wyoming, it's illegal to wound a fish with a firearm, and in Wisconsin, of course in Wisconsin, you can't throw rocks at a train. Now, without the context behind these kind of bizarre laws, they will appear bizarre, odd. It turns out that the donkey one is actually quite, Real uh, practical because in back in the 1920s, there's a dude that let his donkey sleep in his bathtub in his house And there was a huge flood and a rainstorm and that tub got ripped out of the house It caused so much damage and cost so much money for the city that the city actually made a law saying you cannot let a donkey sleep in your bathtub anymore See the bizarre laws and rules that were spelled out in the Old Testament They're bizarre to us, but they were not bizarre to the people of Israel Because each one had a primary intent to separate the people of Israel from the rest of the world. To highlight the fact that the Israelites were intended to be a holy nation, that they were supposed to be set apart for the glory of God. Now, with the entry of Christ, those same laws that were intended to set apart the people of God, it's been completed in Christ. Not replaced, but completed by Jesus. And now there's a new covenant, a new law that has been established which is called the law of Christ which is to love God and to love those made in God's image so now with the law of Christ we look at the words of Jesus like the Sermon on the Mount, now with the law of Christ we look at the words of the apostles like these letters, we look at these to see what applies, what still applies, what is still relevant because some of these laws they don't apply anymore, they're not relevant anymore, some of them still do But they apply, if you think about it, much more now that Jesus has completed the work for us. Let me give an example. Adultery is still a bad thing, right? But it says here that adultery in your heart is just as bad as the act. Murder, still a bad thing. But it says here that murdering someone with your heart by hating them is just as bad, See, the original law of the Old Testament, it was intended to point out that we are unable to follow all that God requires us to be able to perfectly uh, worship, to perfectly live in harmony with a perfect God and with those created in the image of that perfect God. The law, it worked for like a second with Adam and Eve, but they failed and we will fail. We do fail when we try to do it on our own, just like they did as much as we try by our own might, we will never be able to live consistently, we will never be able to live constantly the life of perfection that God intended and God designed. In chapter 3, verse 19, Paul answers the question, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, until Jesus, to whom the promise was made, would come. In verse 26, expands on that answer. He says this, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for, for through faith, you are all children of God in Christ Jesus. So the law was the guardian. The law helped the Israelites understand how they were to be set apart how they should worship the one and only God differently from how the pagans around them did, how the pagans around them worshiped their gods. And now, with Jesus, we live under a different set of rules on how we worship God. Tim Keller is a pastor uh, in New York for Redeemer Church. He described what we're talking about this way. He said this, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. See, God's character is shown to us through the moral laws that are given to us. Everything about loving our neighbor, about caring for the poor, about stewarding God's stuff, looking after our family, these things, these display the nature of God, and these things do not change. How we apply that, though, how we worship, that has changed because of Christ and His redemptive act. We are now free to wear polyester blends we are now free thank God to eat bacon and eat it every day all the time see we're not saved by the law the law shows us that we need to be saved no one was ever saved by the law from Abraham before, not me the other one from Abraham before the law was even established and passed down from Abraham salvation was by faith alone it was based on a promise Chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, it says this. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. The promise. The promise made to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And the new covenant or the promise that Jesus establishes and that unfortunately the Galatians had forgotten is meant for all of God's beloved, not just the Jews. And They had forgotten that. Now everyone can have forgiveness. Everyone can be seen as holy in God's eyes. Everyone can be set apart as a holy nation. And none of it is through what they did. None of it is through what we do. All of it is by what Jesus did. And so the law, which used to act as a guardian until our Savior came, is not going to save us. It never could. The coming of Christ changed how we worship by giving us liberty to be gospel-transformed, spirit-filled disciples who know that they are the blood of God because of Christ alone. And that's it. Nothing else. So in the time remaining, what I want to do is I want to look at... um, what Paul presented as practical application. Some of the practical things that we can look at from this doctrinal truth that he wrote to the churches in Galatia. In chapter 5, verse 1, this is what Paul wrote. He said, For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then. And do, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, we are free. We have liberty. We are called to remember that and not to fall into the trap of putting up rules, putting up requirements for ourselves that God never intended that God never did. And as we get into the application that Paul spells out in chapters 5 and 6, I want you to hear me here. Please note that these are not prerequisites to freedom, to Christian liberty. These are responses to our freedom. These are the character traits of the redeemed that will remind us of our redemption. These are not required. They're, They're the priorities of the beloved of God that will help us remember the work of the Son of God. So, what does it look like to stand firm? What does it look like to not fall into the trap uh, of slavery to the law or slavery to sin? What does it look like? What does a standing firm in, our, uh, in the freedom of our faith look like? I think the first one we can look at is in verse 13 through 15 of chapter 5. For you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But serve one another through love for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Um, every morning, I, I spend a little time you know, making my coffee, straightening up the kitchen, and then diving into scripture. A uh, Couple hours of my time in the morning, that's my time. I'll have my Bibles in front of me. If I, if maybe a candle burning or something, just get the ambiance. I love to start my day that way. That's how I do it. That's how I feel right. Suzette has a similar process as well. She spends her morning in, uh, in prayer, doing her devotion. And because she's such a good daughter, she spends every morning on Skype with her parents in Singapore. Her day starts just a few hours, like two, three hours after mine, but that's fine. But every morning, because out of love for each other, a desire to serve one another, we do our best to stay out of each other's way. That's our, because our morning rituals are kind of sacred to us. And if you were ever to watch me try to get out of bed without making a sound and without moving the mattress, it is the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen in your life. I think I built some of my core muscles because I have to just find ways to sit up without actually making any other part of my body move. And, but if Suzette wakes up for any reason, she, because uh, I, I don't know, I, I failed, she'll just stay in the room because uh, she doesn't want to disrupt my morning rituals and I don't want to disrupt hers. And I wanted to share this ridiculous example because it is from the minutiae to the major. Every moment is an opportunity to serve one another through love, even getting up in the morning. Whether it's with your partner, your spouse, your brother or sister, your roommate, your parent, your child. The question is, what does it look like to love God by loving them? What does it look like to show grace, the grace of God by showing them grace? Because we cannot use our freedom as an opportunity for ourselves. We must use it as a chance to allow ourselves to be transformed by the Spirit of God so that we can show the love of God to the beloved of God. In chapter 5, verse 26, it says, let's not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. In chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Someone asked uh, me and Suzette a while back, how do I consider others more significant than me without not caring for me? How do I love someone more than me yet still love me? Because for some, not for all, because a lot of people are very self-centered, but for some, it's almost easier to die to self. Forget who I am, forget my needs and my wants, and just live to my own detriment. So that I can consider others more significant. Now, if this is a question that you've had in your head, I want to reframe the question a little. Hopefully it might help. Whose definition of love are you using? Is it your definition of love or God's? Because loving those made in the image of God, considering others as more significant, does not mean always agreeing with your neighbor. The law of Christ is this, to love God first and then love your neighbors. And how we are called to love must not be based on my broken definition of love. It's got to be based on God's definition of love. My definition of love will typically, it will not stop anyone from doing something. My definition will say live and let live. My definition of love will say you do you. I'll, I'll be here. But God's definition of love is different. Because, well, first of all, God is love and God is in the fullness of His character and in in His being, God is love and what He desires is that we love others so that others might draw closer to Him who is love. To love your neighbor means not only considering their needs in the physical world but to consider how we can gently restore them in their relationship to Jesus Christ. So... As a result, it turns out discipline is as much a part of loving your neighbor as discipleship. We carry each other's burdens so that we might open the eyes of our sisters and our brothers to the law of Christ. Now, we shouldn't do that by provoking each other. We should do that by rejoicing with each other and by, by reminding our sisters and our brothers of the love of Christ. And we restore our sisters and our brothers in their faith in Christ by reminding them... That the beloved of God are beloved because of God's grace alone. Loving others with a God-ordained, with a God-defined love understands that discipline and discipleship is how we love as God intended. I want to focus on one last thing, if you don't mind. In chapter 5, verse 22 to 25. Many of you will be familiar with this passage. It says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is this, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So I have to say, as I was preparing for today, I really love the fruit of analogy, because I I think it really, really works, and is amazing. Because fruit is produced by working and by watering the soil around it, right? And and fruit is seasonal. And when fruit is cared for well in its season, that fruit can come with such an abundance that the entire community can enjoy it. So this Holy Spirit fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, These are the things that we cultivate when we work the soil, when we we devote time with our Father in Heaven through regular devotion, when we cultivate the soil together with the community God has provided here at Church of the Beloved, when we cultivate the soil through our Sunday services, through our adult Sunday school, with our beloved kids, through our community groups, through serving together in different ministries, when we cultivate the soil. There's going to be times, I'll tell you, that there will be no fruit. There are gonna be dry spells because they come in their seasons. Maybe there's gonna be times when there will be more of one fruit than another, more joy than self-control, who knows, or vice versa. But this is the promise that is made for us, that the fruit will come. And the fruit will come to those who remain diligent, who remain disciplined, who cultivate the soil. Not because it is our, in our discipline that we are saved, it is because we are saved that we desire to live out our discipline. So the redeemed, the beloved of God, we are made free because of God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. And the truth of that freedom, it results in a Holy Spirit-fueled transformation that leads us to love God for this freedom. And to love God for this freedom by loving the image bearers of God and by cultivating our lives so that we can bear the fruit that will allow us to love God and to love the image bearers of God more. It's a holy cycle. That's the first letter from Paul to his friends in Galatia. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life.